0: you shouldn't be calling them asking for money. You should be calling people looking for advocates for your business, uh, people who maybe know someone or someone who is going to be able to have a good conversation with you about what you're doing and be able to be a resource. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey, where we explore every facet of multifamily investing and development with top investors, brokers, and service providers who
1: share their strategies, successes, and secrets to help you on your apartment investing journey. Hey guys, David Robinson here. Welcome to the Apartment Investing Journey. We've got another great guest for you today. Max Gonzalez is joining us. Max, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. David, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So Max started his career in 2003, where he worked as a multifamily broker before transitioning over to acquisitions for large multifamily assets. Max has placed money for high net worth individuals and various institutions. He has structured over 700 million in multifamily real estate transactions in his career, and he leads acquisitions and investor relations at Geometric. So Max, very, very brief bio. You've been in the industry for a very long time and are in the process of going through another transition. I'm sure there's been multiple transitions for you over your career, but let's uh, back up. And our podcast is all about the journey. We want to sort of understand this journey that you've been on over the last you know, 17 all, years or so. All of it. All of so it. So right? let's go back to the beginning and talk to us a little bit about how you even got started in the, the real estate space itself. Sure. So you know, when I got into real estate originally, I was fresh out of
0: college and I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, you know, you know, when we want to get out and you want to start working. And, um, and the first job that I took was actually in office, uh, small tenant leasing space, which was um, a real grind. And I actually had a, a first mentoring broker, the first job I worked at, which was really a very um, poor shop. It was kind of one of these jobs where, you know, here's a desk, you know, you, you buy your own laptop, there's a coffee machine down the hall, if you need it, good luck, you know, that's it, you know, and it was, right. and that's, and that's how a lot of real estate can actually be. You know, if you're going to go work for a good shop, you know, one of the name name brand companies, you know, they have training programs that are set up, but a lot of the smaller groups don't. And they're willing mm-hmm. to kind of let a lot of guys kind of start and potentially fall start or, or fail. And, you know, in the first real shop that let me cut my teeth was working at a, a small, um, actually I shouldn't say small. It's a very successful and detailed organization in Santa Barbara called Radius Group. And I was a um, associate broker underneath their chief uh, multifamily broker it was a gentleman named Steve Golis, who's a phenomenal broker in that market does 90% of the business. There is uh, highly respected because he's just a super, well, he's detail oriented. Um, he's very honest and, um, and he's a very um, straight shooter with people in regards to how business is conducted and how, how he's going to get their building sold for the most money. And I was able to work with him for about three years, which was a, just a fantastic way for me to do a bunch of deals with a guy who was doing a bunch of deals and who empowered you know, someone who at that age was very young to be able to go out and to work for him very well. And, um, and I loved that. It was a great experience. I loved doing that. There was a point at the end of that time where I kind of wanted to start working on bigger transactions. It was the Santa Barbara market. Santa Barbara has assets that are between you know, five and 50 units, about 50 units. There's probably under 10 in the entire market Mm -hmm. um, that are there. And we're working on small uh, mom and pop deals. Now keep in mind, those assets actually make a lot of money. And in looking back, it was a really great niche in the market to be in that space. But I wanted to work on larger deals. And we had an acquisitions officer who used to come into my office, the radius group office. And uh, his name was Sanj Krakar. He heads the company for Reliant Group out of uh, the Bay Area now. At the time, he was working for a company called Fowler Property Acquisitions, and I was talking to him. And said, "Hey, you know, can you tell me about acquisitions?" And I didn't really know what the, what acquisitions was. You know, I was working mm-hmm. as a broker, and I didn't know anything about how that space worked. And he set me up with Fowler as a for an interview, and um, and the president of that organization brought me on as a you know fresh acquisitions guy. And that was when I really learned how you know syndications of deals, what it even meant. Mm. And, you know, cause we'd worked with investors previously where we'd been on, on the buy side and I'd worked with these guys structuring these deals, but I'd never really gotten involved in, you know, what it took to bring in the capital and what it looked like to, you know, structure an organization on an IRR basis, which is something that, you know, brokers don't really have to do. You know, you talk mm. to a broker about value. Hey, what's this building worth? They can't tell you what it's worth. They can tell you what people are willing to pay for it, mm. which is not incorrect. That is what it's worth. I mean, there's this kind of conversation of saying, you know, what's the building worth? Right. Appraiser says it's worth one thing. A broker says it's worth one thing. And all of the buyers say it's going to be worth, you know, whatever their number is to them. Yeah. And the reality is that the building is worth what it closes for. So, you know, within the acquisition space, you know, we're not just looking for, you know, any building you can buy. There's buildings you can buy everywhere, but we're looking for buildings that, that are catered to the type of equity that's being placed in the market. And that's a pretty big detail that you know comes into the acquisitions world where you, know, you might have um, a company, so we buy everything. But when you really get down to it, they don't buy everything. They buy something that's in a very niche space that matches what their investors are looking for, both in product type and in risk profile. And the larger the institutional partner, the more detailed those um, characteristics can get. And we're getting a little off the rails here. So that was the transition into how I got into acquisitions was kind of starting as the broker moving in. And yeah, and I wanted to learn about larger transactions on the smaller stuff. There were deals I would work on where, you know, ask a client for, you know, your financials and a rent roll. And I'd get back, you know, receipts for doorknobs and kind of a handwritten ledger, you know, Mm -hmm. that when the tenant paid rent last, not even what they were supposed to pay, but just what they might've paid. Right. And that was frustrating as a broker. And now on the investment side, you know, we look for those things you know we look mm-hmm. for management um, inefficiencies that we can improve to to make a building work you know a lot more successfully but the you know the acquisition space you know there's a lot of ways to make money in real estate and there's a lot of ways to structure investments to be able to really work to be able to make everyone the most money and and to match their investment goals also from a low risk to high risk depending on how aggressive people want to be with putting their money out in the market
1: yeah and so if I understood the timeline correctly, you started with, uh, was it Radius or Gradius Group? Radius?
0: Radius Group, that Radius. was 2003. And then um, started with um, fellow property acquisitions the beginning of 2007.
1: Okay. Okay. Great. So you you jumped to acquisitions with the new firm, 2007, right before the recession, right? That's correct. Yeah. That's so correct. talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like working for a larger firm in a specialized role as the firm is going through this time period in the market cycle?
0: Sure. So, you know, that was um, an interesting time to really start out. And the effects of the recession, you know, really didn't start being fully felt. End of 2008, 2009, things got worse. 2010, you know, they were really, things were really screeching to a halt at that point in time. And it was, uh, and it was a very, you know, it was a hard time for everyone who was in the business then. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm always very thankful when I meet people who kind of missed it. And I mean that because, you know, a lot of us who went through that still kind of have PTSD from that time in the market. <laughs> right. You know, this memory of how bad it was. And, uh, and it was, it was really awful. And I did, I believe one of the last deals that Fowler property acquisitions did, um, was an office, uh, purchased two office buildings for them, um, in San Diego at the end of 2009. And I believe that was the last, uh, acquisition they did for, I think, two years, I believe. Mm. And, you know, and during that time, you know, people talk about, you know, whether or not it was a, um, a real estate crash and it wasn't a real estate crash. What it was, was it was a liquidity crisis. And there's, there's a difference between the two. Because the, the real estate values, you know, on a, on a core basis are going to be worth what they are. The infrastructure of them is solid and, you know, items that exist and are there are, are what gives them, you know, long term value, but whether or not we can transact on them or what people can pay for them is a structure based on liquidity. And, you know, whether or not there's financing available for those buildings. And during those times, during 2008 was when things got really bad for liquidity. So up until 2008, you know, you could still finance deals, you could still find buildings. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, in a way when, um, you know, the, the main banks really went BK and co- started causing major issues. And there were a lot of owners who, you know, we'd submit an offer maybe fourth quarter, 2007, you know, say, Hey, you know, here's this offer in your building. And I say, nah, it's way too low. You know, we're, we're building's worth more than that. And then three months later, Hey, you know, can you offer on this building, you know, again, <laughs> or, you know, can you take another to look at it, look at it again, financials are even worse and that resulted in an even lower price. And there were a couple of yeah. buildings that we did purchase that we actually tracked down in the market. In fact, one of those buildings was a, um, a 72 unit building called, um, ocean breeze. And I think when I first saw it listed, it was listed at, um, Eighteen five, I think I offered maybe like seventeen. No, it's way too low. Building gets listed with another broker. You know that broker calls me. You know, and I offered on it. You know, I think at fourteen. No, it's way too low. Gets listed over with another broker later, and I think eventually we picked it up for 993. And um, you know, which was a you know a fantastic win for for my organization over the company that purchased it. You know, it was unfortunate that it got tracked down in the market during those years. And, you know, in that situation for many of those owners who went through that, it was like that. And, you know, in the Arizona market, you know, the Las Vegas market, you know, there were locations where, you know, property values dropped by 30%. And some people used, to, and there was such a run up, there's such a run up between 2002 and 2006 where property values were, were just shooting just straight up. That mm-hmm. there was kind of the sentiment oh well, what if property values go down Then what they'll go down to the values of 2002 and like that, like it didn't really matter. But if you're buying a building or you're refinancing a building and you're getting a 70% loan to value and your property value drops by 30%, well, that matters. That means your equity is wiped off the table. And if it's combined with the situation at the time, which was you know unemployment, where you've got, you know, this mass number of um, individuals that are not able to pay their rent, and all of a sudden that you're not able to have your debt service coverage covered, then you have this storm that causes, you know, properties to go back to the bank. I never bought any properties that went back to any any institution, any uh, banks or anything like that in the Arizona market in Las Vegas, it was near to impossible to find any building that hadn't been purchased or refinanced every two years for the previous six years. Mm. I mean, it was, it was every building either, either been refined or been, been purchased. And mm. that made it difficult in trying to buy in those particular markets, because, you know, you're looking at a building and you're trying to offer the owner something that would make them want to sell, but they're looking at it and they're going, if I sell at this price, you know, my investors make money, make nothing. I make nothing. You know, it's better if I just, you know, hopefully hold out, you know, and, sure. and have it work out. And I have partners who I work with now who weathered some of those storms where they said, you know, hey, we're going to keep our building. We're going to. They did cash calls. A lot of these groups did cash calls. They called the investors and said, hey, do you want to protect your investment? We need you to put up this much money to make that work. And some investors did, some investors could not. The investors that could not got washed out of the deals, the investors that could were able to maintain them. And I mean, some of those groups still did well on the backside, but mm. their investment horizon maybe doubled or tripled. You know, they bought mm. a building in 2006. Maybe their original underwriting was to sell it in 2009. Instead, they sold it in 2014, 15 or 16. Right, right. And uh, so those years it was rough. And um, and I uh, got out of the industry for a couple of years, not because mm. I really wanted to, but it was a brutal time. And we eventually made the commitment and said, hey, I want to come back to real estate. Real estate is what I love. This is what I love doing. Mm-hmm. And real estate, you know, it's one of the only industries that I know of where everyone is rowing in the same direction. And I mean, that. you know, when we're you know, working on a deal, the, the seller wants it to go through. The buyer wants it to go through. The brokers want it to go through. The um, capital partners want it to go through. The lenders want it to go through. Everyone is rowing. Right. And, you know, and when the deal closes, you know, there's this really big community win. And, yeah. um, and even if there's any, I'll call it tension during the escrow period, generally on the backside, once the building closes, that all just goes away. You know? Yeah. yeah you know, we, we love this other group. They were a great buyer for us. So we love this group. They were great seller. you know, they sold us this building, you know, and that's a rare thing in the, in, in other industries to find that amount of community. And that's why industry such a relationship business is because you do find out that, you know, within any transaction, there's a bunch of guys bidding and it goes to the ones who are, you know, have the best reputation, you know, the best um, surety of clothes and, you know, and the ability to not make things difficult during that period of time. Because selling buildings is, it's a massive amount of work. I mean, so transacting a building is a massive amount of, it's a massive magnitude of task. It really is.
1: Yeah. And so I'm curious, you took a a two-year hiatus. I did. From the industry. And then you got back in, did you stay in the same lane with acquisitions when you got back into the business?
0: I did. I took a, um, I did. I stayed in acquisitions, and I moved to the Bay Area. Started working the family office up there, and that was, uh, you know, that particular time. You know, getting back in, there was a lot of reshuffling. I'll call it. You know, where people were kind of trying what, to figure rough, out
1: roughly. Roughly, what time? Uh, what year is this? About two thousand. We got back in.
0: Uh, oh. I had a a pause in that period of time. I actually moved home to take care of my mother, who was dying of cancer. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. Uh, it was, you know, it was both a wake-up call and also a reminder of, you know, why it's important to be spending time doing the things you do want to do and not the things you don't. Sure. So I moved to the area, I want to say 2014, because she passed 2013. That, that year was a pretty brutal one. Gotcha. But um, took a position with the family office up there. And, uh, and that position was with an organization that I had hoped was more buttoned up than they were. Mm. And, uh, and they were not. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a great experience from the standpoint of, you know, creating an acquisitions plan and working with a, a group that, you know, was kind of young in their career. Uh, but at the end of that time, I decided I wanted to move back to Southern California and, you know, work with you know, Pacific Urban Residential, which was the company I worked with more recently.
1: Gotcha. And okay.
0: That good.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say so what does the latter half of your career look like just from, you know, a focus perspective and what type of assets were you working sure. with?
0: Sure. So so at Pacific Urban, you know, I very specifically was working on um, two main accounts, which was their large value add account and their Core Plus account. So my focus was on their large value add and their Core Plus. And within that category, you know, my job was very very defined. You know, Pacific Urban was a very detailed shop, very buttoned up in regards to how they underwrote deals, um, what kind of deals they would look at, and what really fit their very specific box. And in many ways, that made my job very focused in that I could work on these very specific acquisitions that match their investment criteria. And that was something that within the large scope space of, um, of institutions, you know, there's I mentioned earlier, there's this kind of conversation where a lot of institutions maybe will, you know, they, they might have a com- comment, oh, we'll buy everything. And, you know, and for a certain price, they might buy everything because everything at a certain return is you know sure. worth doing. But as we all find out in the industry that, you know, our capital is uh, going to be better suited to a particular type of asset because they're, they are, they already understand it and they're able to become aggressive with a particular type of building because of what it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, so for them, you know, we would work on um, value-add um, acquisitions where we go in and put a renovation plan in place. For, uh, for buildings that, uh, that could take a, a very specific business plan written for each one. I want to say business plan. I would write a business plan for each asset that we would acquire. And it would mm. cover everything regarding the building's um, acquisitions, hold period, and you know, eventual disposition, and how we were going to achieve you know, target rents within a particular property. And we'd go through those things with a fine-tooth comb, and we'd go through the market with a fine-tooth comb and make sure that every individual data point had a reason that we used it and why it was there. And that was something that detailed shops is very important because the institutional partner is going to really demand that, hey, if we're going to hand you a billion dollars a year That we want to know that you are going to be a good steward of this money. We're going to make sure that you have done everything that's required to make sure that that our money is protected. Right. And you know, and that was where the detail of some of these really um, larger shops really comes in, where they're able to to truly, um, you know, make a case as to why an investor should invest with them by saying, hey, we're not just out here placing money. We're gonna we're doing everything we can to risk adjust this return on behalf of you, the investor, so that you're sure when you invest with us, we've looked at everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are no guarantees for the market to keep going up or keep going or, you know, to crash or, you know, whatever is going to happen. But what we can, you know, do is cover, you know, dot every I, cross every T so that we're able to, you know, say, hey, you know what, we we did review everything. What happened here was something that was, you know, it was not something that could be counted for or it was something that was, a, you know, so market wide that, you know, it's just affecting everyone that's supposed to one particular asset. Right,
1: right. Okay, so it sounds like you spent you know roughly seven years, six seven years with uh, Pacific Urban. Is that correct? No, I started in twenty seventeen. Oh, gotcha. Okay, great. So we'll call it four or five years now. And it sounds like you're making a transition at this point. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. So this last year, you know, has been kind of a deciding factor, you know, what to do next. I'd worked with some large groups and I'd placed money for some large organizations. Though one thing that I really wanted to focus on for myself was you know building my own personal equity. You know, I mean, that, and that was something that working for some of the bigger shops, surprisingly so, can be a little bit hard or maybe I'll call it a little more uncommon. You know, smaller shops, you know, are often willing to say, hey, you know, we'll offer this percentage of GP and we'll, you know, have this, you know, bonus package that involves ownership and deals. But for a lot of larger groups that they've got established capital partners. That might not be an option. And mm-hmm. they might pay well. They might pay well. might have a bonus structure that works, you know, in such a way that's, um, you know, advantageous for the, for the employees in a different capacity. But as far as gaining equity, not all uh, companies have it, not all companies have it. And it's not a structure that every group has. And, you know, and I just kind of said, Hey, you know what, I'm 40. And, you know, my wife and I kind of had this conversation where we said, Hey, you know, should we be doing this for a large group? Or do you want to do this for us?
1: Mm-hmm. I said, well,
0: you know what, I think I want to do it for us, you know, if that's the case. And that involves just starting. You know, and that's the reality of it. And, and at this phase, you know, it's been, uh, I don't want to say it hasn't been bumpy, it has been. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, I had a skill set that was very, very tailored in the acquisition side, you know, finding the opportunity, writing a business plan, structuring, you know, a business plan that works around, you know, achieving target rents and being successful, working with asset management and construction teams to, you know, cover a renovation uh, budget that could be as small as $1 million dollars up to 20 million. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but what that didn't include was, you know, the capital raising side which is, you know, sure. a major component of the business. Mm-hmm. And this last year, the majority of my time is spent, you know, learning how to raise capital, how to work with people to raise capital, how to, you know, structure, you know, capital in such a way that we can have those things set up to be successful with buying new acquisitions. And yeah. that's been, you know, so that, and that's what I've been spending the majority of my time on.
1: Love it. And so what does the structure of your new business look like today? What are you guys focused on? What are you pursuing and how have you put it together? So we've been working on
0: multifamily acquisitions within Southwest US, and for the most part, you know, we're still looking to do more deals. This has been a very, very aggressive year to be buying deals, and and I mean that. Where a lot of groups are are going out and they're buying real estate based on, yeah, actually, I'll say this: based on some numbers that actually look wildly risky to me, wildly so. And you know, do I think we're going to have a two thousand eight? No, but there's a a huge debate in the market today of, you know, where values really are. And, you know, the real estate market is just, you know, everyone keeps hearing about how hot the real estate market is, how rents are up nationally. But what the funny thing about rents being up nationally is you don't hear about where rents are down. And what I mean by that is, well, if you've got a certain particular area that's surging because of new demand of people moving into one particular area, well there should be an offset of that from moving out of other areas to back to move into these areas that are now high demand areas. And, you know, and the question kind of arises, well, if rents are up, you know, 5%, 7% nationally, well, did incomes increase 5 to 7% also? And the answer is no, they, they have not. That's actually not something that we've seen. So, you know, you look at how many deals that are even um, what would have been considered stabilized assets a year ago where all of them are you know, looking at um, you know, future rents and they're saying, okay, well, we signed one or two leases, maybe three or four, um, at these really high rental rates right now. So a buyer might look at that and they'll take these spot rents and they'll apply that over the rest of the property and in such say, well, the property's now worth more as a result of this new target rent that we're seeing in the market. Mm-hmm. And is that for that reason, you know, deals that were stabilized are now being sold on bridge, almost all of them. If you look at it on a national basis, you know, the number of deals being done on bridge is just a huge percentage of the market. And the reality is is that's risky. It really is. I mean, because you're talking about on a national level, everyone raising prices at the same time and, you know, and have we had so much inflation where, uh, you know, we had this huge stimulus package that came out we've got people coming back to the market and, you know, or people deciding now they want to move maybe their living situation that wasn't working for them previously and now they want to, you know, get their own place or something. And with all the stimulus that's come out, you know, is there really the question that our dollars are worth less? And as Mm -hmm. a result of that, the rents have gone up and the the real estate values have gone up. And you can absolutely make a case for that, though we are going to find out within the next year, how many of these deals are actually able to hit their target rents. Now, do I think there's going to be some mass decline in values or something like that? No, I, I don't, but it could happen. Sure. I mean, it could, it could happen. And there could also be the situation where you've got a number of people where, you know, potentially they just, you know, the buildings that they bought, you know, maybe they don't go back to the banks, but they just don't hit, you know, what they were supposed to. And, you know, and I had a call this morning with someone who just said, you know, he was expecting us to see 7% rent growth, you know, year after year over the next three years, you know, could be the case. You know, we don't really know. Can we underwrite that? No. But, you know, is that something that we could see? It's not another question. It's also, you know, not another question that it could go the other way where, you know, everyone overstates their rents, the eviction moratorium ends, all of a sudden there is new supply on the market, and now people are realizing that the target numbers that they used were actually, you know, too aggressive, and they unfortunately are are potentially, you know, not going to cover their DSCR or be able to refi within, you know, within a year, which they're originally planning on doing.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm curious. I think uh, I think you'll have some insight for our listeners. There are many listeners who are, are in a stage in their career or their investing journey where either they've been in single family and they're looking to transition into multifamily or you know, they're in a, a corporate career and looking to transition into full-time real estate investing, or maybe even some like you that have been in working with a larger institutional investment firm and are looking to go off on their own. And so what are the steps that you've taken to get your business set up? And, and what are some of the challenges that you have faced or are facing to get things headed in a direction where you are building your own business?
0: There's never a right time. You know, my my biggest answer is there's never a right time. You know, I wish that I, you you, you, you can't, you can't go back, but you know, no one knew that the market was going to see such a run up, you know, from 2014 to 2020. And no one really saw the run up from, you know, 2020 COVID to, to current, you know, just in such a rapid increase in values and there will never be a right time. It will always be hard. And there will never be this kind of perfect moment or perfect, you know, stars aligning. Well, now it's the right time to do this. There are always going to be obstacles that are going to be there. And, uh, you know, my biggest piece of advice is to have a partner. You know, I'm still looking for a partner. And that would be something that would immediately assist with immediately growing the organization past where it is. I've got partners that I work with that are individuals who, you know, we work on this deal together, we work on this deal together. We've got the certain thing that we're doing here. But those individuals who have, you know, full, full partners who are able to be in the trenches with them every day, making the calls on both sides, both the investors and the uh, business side, you know, the, that's really the advice that I would have.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, if
0: you're looking at getting started and you got somebody who wants to start it with you, take that, get it detailed out and start because mm-hmm. that piece is a pretty big one. And, you know, and it, it's hard. I mean, talking about starting a new, a new organization, whether it's real estate or anything, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be bumpy across the board and, um, and having somebody in the trenches with you is someone who's going to, it's going to help. It's going to help wildly. So
1: that's yeah. my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. So um, moving forward, what's on the horizon for you and uh, the company that you're building? What are, are you guys going to focus on as far as, uh, obviously you mentioned multifamily. Uh, is there a particular market, market uh, so region Southwest, that you're focused on? Southwest yeah,
0: US. Ahead. Yeah. Southwest US is where we're looking. So, you know, Southern California is actually a market that um, that we really like. Um, in addition to um, the Arizona market, Arizona market, you have to be a little more cautious. You know, that particular market has you know rapid has had rapid growth, population growth, and job growth. There is a question of how much. And I was when I was talking about bridge, where you got certain locations within the um, you know con- the the nation where you know the numbers have gotten so aggressive so quickly that there is a question of whether or not they should continue or if there should be a pullback and that's why it's really important when underwriting these deals to really say hey, you know, have we really, you know, checked the aggressiveness of, you know, the market and seen where, you know, we can or if this deal is a good, a good investment or not. Mm-hmm. California in comparison is blue chip. You know, California, you know, you might be underwriting a deal and might say hey, this has a lower return for whatever reason. But with California, you know, there's always going to be liquidity, job growth, and people who want to move to, you know, more temperate location and, and be in this area, you know, and Fox News and a lot of, you know, uh, media outlets will say, oh, I mean, people are leaving California, they're leaving California. And California is still net population positive. You right. know, so there are investors who have decided to invest outside the state, but the investors haven't moved outside the state. They've just invested outside the state. Hmm. And, you know, so California, as far as, you know, investment, investment location goes, you know, it's still it, California is fantastic. And, you know, we've got our issues just like every state does, but it's uh, it's a location that we still believe in, you know, very, very much. I mean, we, as far as weathering, you know, potential pitfalls, you know, this is a, a fantastic state for it that has, you know, very high barriers to entry also.
1: Well, and, and that's your backyard, right? You're located there. Yeah. Newport Beach. Yeah. And so that gives you an added level of comfort as you're investing in that location. Knowledge of the market, proximity to the market, all that gives you uh, uh, an added layer of not only comfort, but also understanding of what's going on there. And uh, uh, I can understand that. So outside of, uh, you know, the California markets, Southern California markets, you mentioned Arizona, any, any other markets that you're focused on? No, not for the time being.
0: You yeah. know, if, if a really fantastic uh, opportunity arose in another market, would I evaluate it? Yes. The reality is, and this goes for any investors who are looking at investing anywhere, it's very, very hard to assess any investment unless you truly understand the market the pricing within that market, what the cap rates are within that particular market, where the rents are within the submarkets of that market, so that you can truly identify what is a good deal and what's not. And right. you know, and some people might look at a property that's in Newport Beach and it might be a, I mean, this is a little bit of a, you know, funny conversation or our current environment. So somebody those are trading with three caps. But you know, you might look at a building and say, well, oh, three cap that's way too expensive. But if the market caps are actually two seven five, well then that might be a pretty good deal you know, and those are sure. things that you can't really know unless you truly are, are close to that particular market, understand what's going on there in that particular location. And, you know, in those deals, you know, they have to capitalize differently. So if you're looking at, you know, a three cap market versus a five cap market or, you know, whatever it's going to be, you know, you're going in cap, your exit cap, and what your debt is on those assets are all things that are going to be They're going to be different in every market. And it's also going to uh, dictate what kind of investor pool you're going to have, because you might have some investors who really want to own in the beach cities location in California. They want to, it's going to be underwritten as a a low yield um, cash flow play, but on a sale of the asset, you know, they might get all their value back on the sale or all Mm -hmm. of their return on the sale of the asset, which means that they weren't a cash flow investor, but they were someone who, who had a fantastic store value within a beach cities location and did very well as a result of that maybe if you're investing somewhere in you know in the midwest where buildings you know don't have as rapid of an appreciation but do have larger cash flow you know you're going to get a majority of your IRR back on the cash flow and those things mm-hmm. are things that just vary from market to market and they are also things that you're going to vary for your investor base of what they're looking for within an investment
1: does that answer your question yeah absolutely and one of the last questions i have for you here is uh, before we start winding down is in relation to you know capital raising right you mentioned that that's been a big focus of yours over the last you know, year Years. or so as you've yeah. been working to make a transition. What have you learned that might be helpful to our listeners as it relates to building an investor database and raising capital?
0: Don't be shy. Talk to everybody. There are people who will tell you, I mean, you know, you get people who will say, hey, you know, I'm not interested or, you know, whatever it comes out or, you know, my money is tied up or I'm doing this other thing or whatever it is. And you also find people who will tell you, yeah, I totally want to invest. I didn't realize you were doing this. And you'll find both. And you just have to start. That's mm. the biggest comment regarding it. You know, I had one you know, personal friend who I've known for 20 years and, uh, you know, I called her up and I had no idea that they were looking to invest in real estate as a result of um, finding it as a um, offset for their um, taxes due to their business doing very well. Mm. And I had just no idea. You know, we, we talked all the time and we were, um, she and my wife were very close. close. We're, we're all close. And, uh, you know, I didn't even know that was a need until I actually called and, you know, had the conversation, you know, and that's one of those things where people are kind of like, you know, I don't I feel nervous. I want to call people and ask them for money. And the answer is, is, you know, you shouldn't be calling them asking for money. You should be calling people looking for advocates for your business uh, people who maybe know someone or someone who is going to be able to have a you know, good conversation with you about what you're doing and be able to be a resource. And that's something that makes it, you know, an easier call because you're calling people who, you know, you are expanding your network. As you expand your network, you will find some people who want to assist. You'll find some people who are not interested and you find some people who, you know, know someone, some people who, you know, call me on the next one, but across the board, you have to start, you know, it's going to keep growing from there. And yeah. in the investor pool also, and this just goes from, you know, my experience in the business from on the corporate side, a lot of the groups that I've worked with, you know, the fellow property acquisitions, you know the family office and, uh, and Pacific urban, you know, while those groups have institutional partners today, when they started, it was different and it was different. It was not, it was not that way when they started, when they started, it was getting started and doing what they needed to, to make, you know, it, to make ends meet and find yeah. investors and to build that database. And, you know, as you get larger with your investor database, you're able to start doing bigger deals and are able to start getting bigger capital partners. And that does change the way that the businesses have run. You know that's some and that's one thing I've talked to several people who I know personally in this industry about, where some of them don't ever want institutional partners. They don't ever want institutional partners because they don't want to ever have to take their business to the next level of having to do institutional reporting and having a a capital partner who is going to really be able to you know dictate to them how they want uh, the business plan implemented. And that's just and it's just different. You know, some groups are going to have it structured that way, and some are just going to say, "Hey, you know what? I'm." you know, I'm happy with my investors and I'm able to, you know, do the deals that I need and feed my family and, and you know, be happy and grow my portfolio that way. And yeah. in either way is wrong.
1: Yeah. Love it. That's some great insight. And I think that's a, uh, that's a bow on this episode. Look, Max, I, I appreciate you, you know, spending some time with us, sharing your journey with us, going from, you know, getting started fresh out of college and then working, you know, small tenant leasing transitioning and, and working with a mentor in the multifamily space and eventually getting into acquisitions, you know, dealing with the challenges of, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010 recession, getting out of the business and getting back in and really starting your career back over in the space, ultimately transitioning and now working on building your own business and building up your own equity. Thanks for sharing your journey with us and sharing some insights with our listeners that you've learned over the years. If our listeners uh, want to connect with you, learn more about what you have going on or potentially participate in a future opportunity with you, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. Uh,
0: website geometric re.com or Instagram underscore max Gonzalez underscore. And anyone who's looking uh, to have a conversation, you know, reach out. Um, I love working. I get, I work with, Several younger investors right now who are looking getting into business. They want to figure out how to do multifamily. They've they're interested and they they want to connect with someone who's who's done you know, done deals and been around for a long time. And reach out. You know, I would love it. Yeah. And those are the ways to get a hold of me. And I look forward to talking with anyone who's looking at anyone who wants to get into the investment side, you know, please reach out. You know, we would love yeah. to talk to you. We'd love to find out your investment goals and, you know, figure out a way to assist you with getting equity and real estate deals and growing that portfolio.
1: Awesome. We'll have that uh, contact info in the show notes. So go ahead and click on one of those links, connect with Max. Uh, Max, again, thank you for your time. I appreciate you sharing your journey with us and uh, look forward to connecting with you again soon.
0: Thanks, David. Appreciate it.
1: Hey, before you go, if you and I haven't connected yet, please head on over to canovo.capital.com. You can join our investor network or download our free passive investors guide to multifamily syndications. Either way, I'd love to connect with you personally. Also, I just want to thank you for listening to the show and providing feedback and reviews. If you haven't already, please, please, please take a second and leave us a rating and written review. This helps us to be found by new listeners and helps us attract great guests in the future. Thanks again for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great day.